Welcome to the Sanctions Space Podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions Compliance at Risk at ACANS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. Joining me today is my fairly new colleague, Craig Tim, Senior Director, Anti-Money Laundering here at ACAMS. Craig, you know, it's great to have you as part of the team is what I have to say, but just by way of context, you've got a really interesting, fantastic background, a number of areas, but there's two I really want to pull out. One is you were previous Managing Director in the Financial Crimes team in Bank of America, so great industry knowledge. But also, and pretty relevant for today's discussion actually, also the Deputy Chief Asset Forfeiture and Money Laundering section in the Department of Justice. So both industry and pretty heavy hitting public sector experience. So Craig, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the ACAMS team. Thanks so much, Justine. It's great to be here. So we are sitting in Hollywood, Florida at our main conference, which this year is incorporating the Global Sanctions Summit. So there's a lot of people walking around, we're in an open booth, people are waving to us, throwing things at us, all various things, so it's great fun. But, you know, we've just had some most amazing, outstanding expert-level discussion this week, and I suppose what I'm going to ask you to do is, looking at this through the sanctions lens, what has really stood out to you? I mean, I think we have to start with Markian Kluchkovsky, the special assistant to the president of Ukraine. He gave a presentation, followed by a dialogue with yourself, this morning that I think was just incredibly powerful. I think it brought in all of the elements of hearing a victim on stage, but yet at the same time, like a victim who's fighting back, right, against these horrific atrocities. And I think you could hear a pin drop when he was speaking, right? And I thought one of the most amazing things I think I've maybe ever seen at a conference was a spontaneous standing ovation after he was done, right? Which was just unbelievable you know watery eyes all around me included I, I, I had tears in my eyes you know obviously it was like he's an impressive inspirational person but it also made me proud of the group right that this is how they react to something like that and I thought you know in terms of substance one of the things he said you know the question is always are these sanctions making a difference right and one of the things he said is that the export controls around semiconductors and chips have made a material difference in the amount of bombs hitting Ukraine every day. So he talked about how at the end of last year, it was October, November, 100, 200 bombs a day. Now that's down to 10 to 20 per day. I mean, think of the lives that that's saving. You know, so all the professionals listening to this right now, involved in sanctions, involved in export controls, it is making a difference in saving lives. So I think, you know, that's number one. I think number two, I mean, there's so many, but I think number two, was a panel yesterday with four current heads of financial intelligence units. So the head of FinCEN, FinTrack, and the FIUs in the UK and the Netherlands. And so this wasn't necessarily supposed to be sanctioned focused. But when you ask them what their number one concern is, what's the number one threat they want to talk about? It was sanctions evasion. And I thought, you know, some really interesting things coming out of it in terms of, you know, sort of a big five thing to think about in terms of trends, like what is sanctions evasion? What's happening right now? There were five, and so they, the use of family members was one. You know, the oligarchs and others, family members, close associates, putting companies in their names. Two, using real estate to hide assets or to just enjoy their assets. Three was the use of complex ownership structures and how that can facilitate sanctions evasion. Four was enablers, you know, these third parties who are helping them to hide. And then fifth was the use of third-party countries for facilitating trade, circumventing export control. So I thought, you know, really interesting of like, that's what's happening right now. 
And then the other interesting thing I thought they said, you know, this has been probably the space where we've seen the greatest international cooperation maybe ever in the anti-financial crime space. And so one of the things they're looking at doing and actually starting to test is, you know, we've got great public-private partnerships in different countries. How can you bring those together internationally to really start to make a difference? So I thought that was, you know, some cutting-edge stuff by the heads of FIUs all around the world. Yeah, I think you summed that up really fantastically. And it has been outstanding, just the conversation. But you know, I can't sit down with you today and not really draw upon your background, right? Because you've got such an interesting background, and particularly with the Department of Justice. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in the sanctions world talking about OFAC, and we all look at OFAC. But being Treasury-focused, you know, we look there. But the Department of Justice is a really important player here, aren't they? And I just want to ask you, given your previous Department of Justice experience, you know, how would you describe their role? You know, how big a deal are they in this space? It's actually a really critical role. OFAC is critical too, but they each serve different purposes. U.S. sanctions are what we call in the U.S. strict liability, right? So you can violate them without knowing that you're violating them, without even being reckless, right? If you, you know, engage in a payment you're not supposed to, it's a violation. The Department of Justice has a completely different lane. For a criminal violation, you have to know that these sanctions are in place and you have to intentionally seek to circumvent them or violate them, right? So that's a whole nother level of knowledge. And with that comes a whole nother level of penalties. And so really the Department of Justice plays a key role in terms of penalizing, in terms of deterrence. So you think about what comes along with criminal sanctions. So one, first and foremost, if it's an individual, jail time, right? So that is a real consequence of a sanctions violation DOJ can bring charges and you can serve prison time if you're an individual. For an entity, the fines are ratcheted up. So sanctions violations are what we would call a predicate crime of money laundering. So you commit a violation of sanctions and then you move that money around, you seek to hide it. That's now money laundering. That in the U.S. system brings forfeiture. And so all of that money that was involved in the sanctions violation is now subject to forfeiture. And so when you see some of these big cases against some of the European banks from maybe five years ago or so, right, the reason those fines got so high, you know, BNP Paribas, almost $9 billion, is because the forfeiture law, when you bring in criminal offenses against an entity, allows for those penalties. So you think about what's ultimately going to deter someone from doing this. Jail time and really high fines are, are two big pieces. The third is when you have criminal charges against a financial institution, for example, now all of a sudden in most states or federally, that requires a review of your charter, right? So you now, it is now an existential threat if you criminally violate sanctions. That's a pretty good mixture to deter somebody who's maybe thinking, oh, this is a you know, business decision, right? Like those are some pretty significant consequences that the Department of Justice brings. So they're certainly more visible, I would say. They've always been visible, right? But they definitely seem to be becoming more visible these days. They're hitting the headlines a bit more, particularly with the Kleptocapture Task Force. Looking to the future, what do we just expect from DOJ? What do you think is on the horizon? You're absolutely right that Kleptocapture Task Force has been a top priority for the Department of Justice. And they're achieving results, right? They've already seized over $500 million or forfeited or otherwise. They've charged over 35 individuals. So these are people, you know, potentially seeing real jail time. You know, I think the way I'd think about it is the task force phase one was, 
you've got an identified list of sanctioned parties. Let's find their, their assets and let's seize them, right? And that work will still go on. It won't end. But as we move into what I might call phase two, now the focus is going to the people helping them. So the enablers is a big focus. And we've seen a number of recent cases against enablers. I think the second is around export controls. We talked about that a little bit earlier. But if you can prevent the Russian military from getting the materials they need to fight this war, you make a real difference in the war, right? You prevent people from dying. You may shorten the war substantially. And so that is a real focus. So looking at those components, looking at third-party countries to where who's facilitating this activity, I think you've definitely seen, I'm not going to say a change in focus, but an expansion in focus. And I think the amount of resources they have going into this is significant. There are people in every state in the country focused on this. So that's going to continue for the rest of this year. And I expect you will see more and more actions as the year goes on. And DOJ, where do they fit within the broader enforcement landscape? How is that all just playing out at the moment? You know, they will often work in tandem with the Treasury Department, right? So they're they're hand in hand in terms of these types of investigation. But I think, you know, when it comes to where they fit, I think the ability to seize assets as they're they're coming along, right? We've talked a little bit about that. They've some of the stuff they've done against enablers recently with, you know, looking at people or who's making the payments for the real estate, right? Who's doing those sorts of things. I think they're hand in hand really with sanctions that OFAC has and then a way to really go after the people facilitating this and the other things happening around it. So changing the discussion slightly, and we touched upon this in our monthly update just a couple of weeks ago, four weeks ago, I think, but the Hulk Bank. By this, I'm really meaning the recent U.S. Supreme Court judgment on Turkish state-owned Hulk Bank. What really led to this judgment? Why is it important? You know, why should we even be talking about it? So just to set the scene a little bit for those not as familiar, so Hulk Bank, as you mentioned, Turkish-owned bank, was indicted several years ago for conspiring to evade economic sanctions, uh, specifically against Iran. At the time, other individuals were charged. One of their executives has now been convicted and sentenced. But the case against the bank itself uh, was paused. And so essentially what was happening is Hulk Bank said, look, as a state-owned enterprise, a, a company owned by the Turkish government, we are immune from criminal charges in the United States. And so that played its way out through the court system going all the way up to the Supreme Court. So our top court in the land just a couple weeks ago reviewed the case. And so what happened was, you know, Hulk Bank was saying, look, there's this particular law in the United States that gives us immunity in this case. The Supreme Court says, no, that's not correct. That law does not provide immunity, but there may be some other law that does. We hadn't considered that. The lower court hadn't. So we're going to send it back down. So it's not a final, final decision, but I think it's one that definitely makes it more likely that Hulk Bank will now have to face charges. And so when you think about that in the broader context, think about it now in the Russian sanctions evasion context, the potential for state-owned enterprises, companies owned by foreign countries, to potentially face criminal sanctions charges in the United States, that's a big deal. So this case, had it gone the other way, you know, you talk about incentives, deterrent effect, all of those things. That's now, if you're a, a company who's owned by a foreign country, yeah, you've got to be thinking like there's a very real possibility I could face criminal charges if I'm involved in Russian sanctions evasion or otherwise. 
Craig, I'm going to kind of like draw this to a close. And Hollywood finishes tomorrow, Hollywood, Florida. We're here in lovely, sunny weather. But as we all depart, what's on the horizon for you? What's next in your world of thinking? What's out there? So sitting in a bunch of sessions this week, sanctions and otherwise, you know, one of the key themes that cuts across really every type of financial crime, and we mentioned it a little while ago, is the abuse of corporate structures. And I think, look, we, we have to face it. As a global community, we're doing a pretty terrible job around corporate transparency and beneficial ownership. The FATF last year did a study and found that only about half the countries that they looked at have adequate laws. And of those, only 9% are doing a very good job. If we're really going to tackle some of these issues, we have to tackle corporate transparency and beneficial ownership. It has an outsized effect on all types of crime. This is a place where hopefully ACAMs can play a role. So we are looking to bring together, you know, we have 100,000 members across the public and private sector in 180 countries. Let's leverage that membership. Let's go around the world and let's figure out who's getting this right. You know, who is doing something that is working and let's piece that together and let's figure out how we can arm governments, jurisdictions around the world with best practices so that we can tackle this issue. So. That work is going to be underway. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in Dublin. We're going to have a roundtable there. We're going to hear the European perspective. Lots of interesting stuff around beneficial ownership there. We're going to take it to Asia, the Middle East, elsewhere, you know, and really see if we can, you know, leveraging the power of our members, which are quite powerful, and get a bunch of smart people in the room and see if we can make a difference. Craig, can I just say thank you so much for taking time out of the busy conference schedule to sit in the booth here with me today. Really great to have NACAM's colleague on the podcast. We don't do enough of this. You know, we've got so much expertise in-house and we should speak more often. But for those of you listening and who are not able to be here with us in Hollywood, Florida, we do hope you found today's discussion useful. Please do sign up to the podcast. Keep hearing the sanctions, um, the stories behind sanctions. Craig, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.